the Gospel of Matthew. In way of introduction, this particular record is part of what's known as the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic, just a fancy word of, of saying similar. Written at roughly the same time as, as Matthew, you have Mark, you have Luke. They recount many of the same stories of Jesus' life, but they do so with a different perspective each. Mark writes, presenting Jesus as the ultimate servant. Luke, being a doctor, presents Jesus as the ultimate man. Same stories, largely speaking, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, just written from different angles, different perspectives. And yet, while there's a lot of similarities, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, really does have some unique characteristics unto itself. First, like John, but unlike Mark and Luke, Matthew was one of the original 12 apostles, also known by his Hebrew name, Levi. Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, grew up in the Galilee, the region surrounding the Sea of Galilee, and was a tax collector by trade. Not only did this make Matthew a man of considerable means, but on account of his necessary connections with Rome being a tax collector, it's likely that he was a Roman citizen. Evidence can be found in the fact that while possessing an, an ethnic name, Hebrew name, Levi, he was also known by a Greek moniker, Matthew. Other examples of this in Scripture uh, can be found in a man known as John, but you might more commonly know him as Mark, or a, a man named Saul, who would later become known as Paul. Two different names, Greek, ethnic, likely evidence of citizenship. Though Mark produces his account from Peter's recollections. And Luke does the same by conducting extensive interviews with those who had been present. Again, like John, Matthew provides his reader a first-hand account, an eyewitness of everything he records for us. Matthew, you should keep in mind, as a tax collector, would have been hated by his Hebrew brethren. He made a living literally ripping off the people. And yet, Mark chapter 2 records an most amazing moment. When Jesus comes there at the shore of Galilee, he sees Levi, and he calls him. He calls him, invites him to leave everything behind in order to become one of his disciples, and Matthew jumps at the opportunity. Now, as a tax collector, Matthew would have been required to have a certain level of education. So he would have been educated, arithmetic, whatnot. He would have also had to have been fluent in multiple languages. He would have had to have possessed an experience in, in keeping detailed records. As such, many scholars believe, and there's not biblical evidence for it, it's just a theory, that Levi may have actually been the official secretary of Jesus' ministry uh, documenting in real time noteworthy events as they were happening. A, a real convincing proof of this fact is that Matthew gives for us a more comprehensive record of Jesus' teachings than any other of the gospel writers. Now you'll find bits and pieces of three famous sermons that Jesus gave in both Mark and Luke. And yet it is, it's in Matthew's gospel that we have the most complete and thorough recording of Jesus' three major discourses. The Sermon on the Mount, the parables of the kingdom, 
and the Olivet Discourse. And how would Matthew have been able to provide us such a thorough accounting? I don't think he had that great of a memory. It stands to reason that Matthew, as secretary, was probably sitting down with pen and parchment taking notes of what Jesus was saying. That wouldn't have been an uncommon practice. Although it's impossible to say whose narrative of Jesus' life was completed and, and put into circulation first, whether it was Matthew or Mark. You'll find arguments about each. That said, placing Matthew sequentially as being the first book of not just the Gospels, of, but of the New Testament canon, was not an accident. You see, Matthew intentionally crafted his account to really build off of the Old Testament. And he does this to present Jesus as being the long-prophesied, the long-promised Messiah, the promised King. Uh, to this point, you, you'll find this through our series, but over and over and over again throughout his Gospel, after Matthew records some development in the life of Christ, he'll write how this was done to fulfill that which was said by the prophets. And then he'll proceed to quote and cite a specific prophecy that Jesus was fulfilling in that moment. Matthew does this all the time, very consistent with it. Now what's interesting is that while he may have been a tax collector when Jesus called him, Matthew, Levi, would have been perfectly equipped for this task. The task of connecting the life of Jesus, the life of Christ, back to the prophets of old. You see, by his very namesake, Levi, we know that Matthew would have possessed a priestly heritage. In all likelihood, because he came from the tribe of Levi, making him a member of the priesthood. As a boy, Matthew would have been groomed by his father and likely grandfather to have been some type of a religious scholar. He would have been groomed, educated to be a scribe or even a political leader, like one of the Pharisees or Sadducees. He would have known this man. He would have known the Torah, the books of history, the poetic manuscripts, and the prophetical writings backwards and forwards. With some 99 Old Testament references and a particular Jewish flavor to his writing, as we'll see at the end of the study, there is no doubt that Matthew's gospel was crafted for a Hebrew audience. In fact, his entire point in writing is to prove that Jesus was the King of the Jews, the Messiah. Matthew wants his reader, the audience, to know that all of the promises that God had given to, to Abraham, to, to the, the patriarchs, to King David, had been fulfilled in this one man born in Bethlehem who grew up in Nazareth, Jesus. As an aside, Matthew's potential family connections with the ruling religious class may also explain why he ends up being, of all of the gospel authors, the most critical of the religious establishment. Again, these were his family members. These were people that he looked at, and he's like, in, in spite of like the incontrovertible evidence that Jesus was sent by God and is our king, you guys rejected him and crucified him. He uses the word hypocrite often, brood of vipers frequently. Matthew has most to say about the religious establishment. Now, before we dive into the book, 
I want to answer, in light of these things, an important question. If Matthew is writing to a specifically Hebrew audience, presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies regarding a Jewish king, (laughs) since the overwhelming majority of us happen to be bacon-loving Gentiles, why should we care? Like, we're not Jews. What's the big deal? Here's why we should care. Here's why we should study this book. The same prophecies that predict the Jewish king also tell us that that king will establish a global kingdom by which all of the nations of the earth will be blessed, that that king would come in a way in which any man might be saved from their sin by placing their faith into him, that in the end, this man's family would actually end up transcending the Jewish people and come to include all that would place their faith in him as their savior. Think of it this way. If Jesus is, as Matthew will make the case, the rightful king of the Jews, it means he's also the rightful king of heaven, which has implications for you and I. Now, knowing that Matthew's intention is to present Jesus as the king, the king that all the prophets foretold was coming, it makes sense, doesn't it, that Matthew begins his gospel by giving us a genealogy. Like, obviously, in order to be the promised king, the promised Messiah, in order to have a claim to a throne that would require you to have a lineage that goes back through King David to Abraham, a genealogy, a list of names, the evidence of such would be necessary and required. And that's, that's why the Gospel of Matthew begins the way that it does. Let's get into it. Verse 1 of chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Beyond its relevance to the list of names that's provided in this chapter, verse 1 does give us uh, the, most, the, the more larger thesis for the book. Again, his intention to bridge the New and the Old Testaments. Matthew provides here the family origins, and he says, of Jesus Christ. Again, I don't want to assume that you know uh, that that Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's a title. And the actual original language, it, it would be better translated as Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, whom, then Matthew adds, was also the son of David, as well as the son of Abraham. Prophetically, the Jews understood the promised Messiah had to possess a very unique and distinct family heritage, one that weaved its way through men that God had made promises to, Abraham, and then Abraham's son, Isaac, and then Isaac's son, Jacob, and then of Jacob's 12 sons, Judah, promises made, all the way down through a promise made to King David. You see, it's not that we're being told here by Matthew that Jesus, the Christ, was a son or a son of of, of David or a son of Abraham. It's not as though uh, what we have being presented here is just any descendant. The use of the definite article, the son, means that Matthew is saying this is the descendant, the heir, the promise that God had given to each of these men fulfilled in Jesus. Now, this is where we're going to have fun. I have worked very difficult, like it's been very difficult, I've worked diligently. Um, I'm not Hebrew. 
thus, uh, I have a hard enough time with English, yet alone Hebrew. Um, and this list of names that we're about to read through is, uh, it's, it can be laborious. Um, I've worked hard. Uh, if I mispronounce something, um, I, I promise you that uh, I can find three or four different websites that pronounce that word differently. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is an ancient language, ancient names. So just, um, I'm going to do my best. Here we roll. Abraham, I'm glad we have an easy one right there at the beginning. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez. Andy, I didn't know if you knew this, but that's how you pronounce your last name. Perez. And Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. And Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadav. Aminadav begot Nakshan. And Nakshan begot Solomon. Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her, who had been the wife of Uriah, verse 7. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Amon. And Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Verse 12. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel. I nailed it. And Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud. Abiud begot Eliakim. And Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zodok. Zodok begot Achim. And Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eleazar. Eleazar begot Machtham. And Machtham begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations, verse 17, from Abraham to David, are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Yes, thank you so much. I felt like I did that well. But let me make a few broad points about this particular genealogy. Before then, we transition to some of the more interesting details that emerge from this list of names. If you came this morning thinking Zach was just going to read through a list of names and then we'd move on, you're mistaken. <laughs> We're not going any further. The rest of the Bible studies about this genealogy. First, you need to keep in mind that genealogies were very important to the nation of Israel. Now, you might have noticed this as you've been reading through Scripture. There's a lot of lists of names, but you might not know why. Why did they keep these lists of names? Why was this so important? Now, if you go all the way back to Genesis, the end of Genesis, while on his deathbed in Egypt, Jacob, who by this point, God has changed his name to Israel, he prophesied over his 12 sons. Because of this, as his family grew, over the next 400 some odd years in captivity, 
the families of each of these sons would grow and develop into a clan, a unique clan. At last, once Moses led the people out of Egypt, this nation of descendants of Jacob existed in 12 distinct tribes specifically related to their ties to these 12 sons. In fact, during the Exodus, God would specifically organize the camp of Israel to surround the tabernacle of meeting in the center according to these tribal designations. They were important to God, and we see them relayed as as being important in the Scriptures. Dan, Asher, Naphtali existed to the north. Gad, Simeon, and Reuben to the south. Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun were to the east, with the tribes of Benjamin, Manasseh, Ephraim situated to the west. This is all found in Numbers 2 and 3. Now, ultimately, when the nation finally entered the land of promise, so they finally get back to the promised land, under now the directive of Joshua, the territories, the land itself, was divided how? It was divided by tribe, who then subdivided the land into plots according to the individual families that made up the tribe. A great example of these type of important tribal identities can be found in the one tribe that wasn't given any land at all, the tribe of Levi that God set aside to solely be the family that would work and the temple, the tabernacle, uh, the place of meeting. Because these 12 tribes were given various functions, going all the way back to the prophecies given by Judah, and the fact, and this is important, that land ownership was attributed to each family, keeping detailed genealogical records was paramount. Now, beyond the records that are written down in the Old Testament Scriptures, by the time of Christ, the temple housed an extensive archive that traced the family lineage of every living Hebrew male. Like, there were times that, like, let's say you were given a section of your family land, you went into debt, you couldn't pay off the debt, you ended up giving that land away. You know, try to satisfy what you... So now it's in another family, but it was given originally to your family. The year of Jubilee... Every 50 years, everything got reset, and the land was returned back to the original family, given that land all the way back dating to Joshua. So the records were important. Genealogies were important. Now, it is true, and we'll get to this some next week. Herod the Great had many of the genealogies that were related to those living specifically in Bethlehem destroyed around 6 B.C., since both Mary, Joseph, and their families had settled in Nazareth, Matthew would have had access to their genealogical records, enabling him to compile the list of names we just read. Now, what's important and noteworthy is that in 70 AD, when Rome sacked Jerusalem, all of the genealogies were were subsequently lost. They were destroyed along with the temple. Meaning that since 70 AD, it is a fact that no one can prove messianic lineage going back through David to Father Abraham other than one person. Jesus, for the records, no longer exist. Now, the second thing that you need to keep in mind regarding this particular genealogy 
is that when compiling such a listing, it was not abnormal to record really only the notable characters and in turn skip a few generations. In fact, when Matthew sums up the genealogy in verse 17 by saying there were 14 generations from from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian captivity, and then 14 from the captivity to Jesus, he's affirming this reality because if you go and count through it, you're not going to find 14 within each of these three designations. Thirdly, and this is related, it's worth noting the absence of any criticism pertaining to the family lineage of David, there wasn't any criticism in Jesus' day. Now, what does that mean? Like, these records that Matthew is citing here, summarizing, like, they were in the public domain during the life of Christ. They were in the public domain when Matthew published his gospel, meaning that it would have been very easy, in fact, simple, For the religious leaders, the scribes, those that were enemies of Christ, to have challenged his messianic claim by just going to the genealogy. If the genealogy didn't validate his claim, it would be easy to squelch his whole movement, and yet such a criticism is never made in the gospel records. Even the enemies of Jesus understood that this genealogy was complete. It was legit. Lastly, while it seems that Luke will provide the blood lineage of Jesus to these various men through Mary's genealogy. In providing us a list here in Matthew 1 that concludes with Joseph, Matthew's doing something important. He's giving us, he's establishing, he's providing Jesus' legal standing to David's throne. He didn't have a blood link through Joseph. But he did have a legal standing through Joseph as an adopted son. Look again at verse 16. This is how the whole thing summarizes. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now regarding the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew, he goes above and beyond here to make it crystal clear that Jesus was not in any way, shape, or form Joseph's biological son. Matthew introduces Joseph, how? As being the husband of Mary, before then adding of Mary, that it was her of whom was born Jesus. Now, in the Greek, this phrase, of whom, it is both singular and presented in the feminine gender. Matthew is saying here that Jesus had biologically only one parent, his mother Mary, inferring the virgin conception. And yet, again, while Jesus did not possess this biological connection with Joseph because he's an adopted son, legally speaking, Jesus would have had a claim to the throne by extension. So, claim to the throne through Joseph, bloodline through Mary, summarizes it. Now, regarding some of the more interesting details of the list, and again, knowing that God is in control, of all of these things. He's in control of the the messianic lineage, the fact that God's in control of who's included in the messianic lineage. It's amazing to me, and it demands some of our attention, who actually ends up being included in the family of Jesus Christ. Like for starters, even the ardent Bible scholar, the student of Scripture, will concede the fact 
that a majority of the names in this list are people that we simply know nothing about. Nothing at all. Like, for example, following Zerubbabel, the ca- after the captivity to Christ, we know nothing of the next ten people provided. Nothing at all. It should also be pointed out of those that we do recognize. So the names that do jump off the page. There are almost as many that were infamous as were famous. Like Broadly, we won't get into all of the particulars, but Judah? Go back and read his story. Judah was a disaster. Like the man's a train wreck. Solomon? King Solomon? Most of his life was lived in abject hedonism. His son Rehoboam was such a head case that his actions ended up splitting the kingdom in two. Manasseh in the list was arguably the evilest king to rule over God's people. And there were some wicked dudes. That doesn't even take into account the checkered stories of men like Abraham, who was not perfect, or Jacob, Mr. Heel Catcher, or King David. And what would have been a a break from a normal genealogical record? It's also worth noting, it's noteworthy, that Matthew, aside from this list of people we don't know anything about, and the people that were infamous, as as many as were famous, aside from all of that, what makes the, the list fascinating is that Matthew includes four women and the genealogy of Christ plus Mary, which was unheard of in that day and age. And if that weren't enough, let's be fair. It's not as though that the inclusion of these specific four women would have been a compliment. In verse 3, Matthew notes how Judah begot Perez and Zira by Tamar. Tamar. Recorded all the way back in Genesis 38, Tamar was a young Canaanite woman who was picked by Judah to marry his oldest son, Ur. Sadly, Ur proved to be a wicked man. So God does what he does. He killed him. Now, because Ur dies before Tamar could receive an heir, before she could get pregnant. As was the custom in that day, Judah then gives Tamar to his second son, a man by the name of Onan. Tragically, Onan was a jerk-off, emitted on the ground instead of impregnating her, which led God to striking him down as well. Now, despite the promise to give Tamar to his youngest son, Shelah, once he came of age. In the course of time, it becomes evident to Tamar that Judah had no real intention of honoring their arrangement, leaving her no choice but to take matters into her own hands. A woman does what a woman's got to do. As such, and again, this is all recorded in the Bible, Genesis 38. This is a real story. As such, Tamar hears that Judah's in town. Judah has just lost a wife. He's grieving. Kicking it back with his buddies. So she does what any woman would do. She dresses up like a whore. 
And then she goes out specifically to catch Judah's attention, his gaze. Who doesn't recognize her? See, she secures payment for her services. She gets Judah's signet ring, the cord and the staff. And then she has sex with her father-in-law. True story. Well, three months later, when she finally turns up pregnant, Judah's like, I can rid myself of this problem finally, once and for all. But oh, the surprise. When Tamar then identifies the father of the child by using the, well, Judah's signet cord and staff as evidence that he happened to be the father. Amazingly, through this twisted tale, Tamar has twins by her father-in-law Judah, one of which is this man, Perez, who ends up being included in the family lineage of Jesus Christ. Two verses later, in verse 5, Matthew also tells us that Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. You know, unlike Tamar, who will hoard herself as a means to an end, Rahab was a whore by occupation. She was a known harlot that worked the Red Torch District of Jericho. Glad you kind of picked up on the Red Torch. According to the account that's provided in Joshua 2 and then Joshua 6, when two spies that were sent to spy out the city from Joshua run the risk of being captured, and, and what was really an act of, of kindness and bravery, Rahab hides these men in her home, helping them escape detection. In the end, Rahab will place her faith in the God of Israel. She'll hang a, car, a scarlet cord out of her window via the instructions of the spies, and she ends up being the only survivor when the walls of Jericho came a-tumbling down. It seems at this point, Rahab joins the camp of Israel. She eventually marries a Jewish man named Salmon, who ends up having a son that they name Boaz. Not only is Rahab saved, but she's included in the lineage of Jesus. Now, in the same verse, Matthew then notes how Rahab's son, Boaz, begot Obed by another woman. Ruth. Well, there's really nothing bad that you can say of Ruth. But her story does begin in the land of Moab. And, and please note that the Moabites were a wicked people that were the direct descendants of Lot getting hammered and being taken advantage of by his two daughters thinking the world had ended. So not exactly a great you know, family to come from. The Moabites. Ruth would have grown up pagan. She was godless. She was wicked. This culture around her. And yet, deeply influenced by the faith of her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi, Ruth made the ultimate but difficult decision to leave her family behind, to leave her life behind, and to reside in the land of promise as a widow, a Gentile widow. And as a result, it was tough making it in a foreign land like this. But God had a plan for her life. Ruth would cross paths, it's a beautiful story with Boaz, in the fields. A man that God would then use to demonstrate his love for Ruth. Not only would Ruth end up being the great-grandmother of King David, but she ends up being included in the lineage of Jesus as well. Lastly, in verse 6, Matthew notes a fourth woman 
look at it. He says that David the king begot Solomon, and then he says by her who had been the wife of Uriah. I don't know about you, but the way that Matthew kind of articulates this development, it makes me feel a little uneasy. It's, it's almost as though Matthew, in writing this, can't bring himself to even utter the name Bathsheba. He just refers to her as the woman who had been the wife of Uriah. Well, the child that had been conceived via her affair with King David, that child passed away. Because David has her husband murdered, it's a cover-up. And yet, what blows my mind, astonishingly, another son that they have together, Solomon, would become the third king over Israel, and and that what would begin as a sexual affair and then a murderous cover-up would lead to this woman, Bathsheba, also being included in the family lineage of Jesus. I know the first 17 verses of Matthew 1, this list of ancient names, it's important to record, difficult to read. And yet, in light of of who's in this genealogy, there are five big ideas that, that I want you to consider before we wrap things up. Five of them, we'll go through them very quickly. But just as I'm contemplating, things that stick out to me. First, I hope you know that you don't have to do something significant to be included in the family of Jesus. Because sometimes we feel like we've got to do something to be worthy of all the favor that we're given. And yet, as noted with this list, most of these people we know nothing about. But Jesus knew them. God knew them. And he includes them in his family and his story. So you don't have to do something significant for God to take note of you. God made you and he loves you and he knows you since the foundations of the world. Uh, Secondly, another point that just jumps out is that your, let's just say maybe sordid past, doesn't automatically disqualify you from being in Jesus' family either. Like if you're wanting one big takeaway from this particular list of names, is that if Jesus would include these people in his family, then he can include you. But Zach, you don't know what I've done. You slept with your father-in-law? Committed incest? Adultery? Murder as a cover-up? Like, we can run down the list, right? I mean, this is genuinely a list of misfits, of people that don't deserve it but were picked by Jesus and included. Your sword past, whatever mistakes you might have made, Jesus is more interested in your future than your past. He's come to make all things new. Right? New creation in Christ Jesus, where old things pass away. So your sword past, whatever mistakes you might have made, doesn't disqualify you from being in Jesus' family. And I, I take great comfort in that reality. Thirdly, in fact... One of the things you could take from the list is that Jesus is actually able, more than able, to work through your dysfunction to accomplish his will. I mean, over and over and over again, you, you get these just, just, you know, the Tamar story, the Bathsheba story. You get these, like, these stories where it's like, man, man, people are messing it up. 
And yet, Jesus uses it all, doesn't he? You know, there's a passage uh, in, in one of the prophets, I believe it's Ezekiel, where, where we're told that, that God can restore even the years that the locust has eaten. And it's, and, it's, and it's a picture of that, yes, we might make mistakes, and yes, there might be consequences, and, and yes, you might look back, and there's some times of barrenness, of judgment. But God can make all things new. That God can work through those things and work in, and, and use those things in your life to do something amazing. I mean, isn't that a, a, a radical idea? That God can use your worst mistakes to make you the person he wants you to be? That God could take the disastrous first marriage and use it to prepare you to be the bride or the husband for the next marriage? That God can use these things? I, I, I find grace oozes that reality. The other thing that jumps out, and this will apply maybe more to some of you than others, but you know, this is a very checkered family tree that Jesus comes out of, right? But Jesus comes out of it, which tells me that a checkered family tree doesn't determine who you have to be. You know, sometimes, you know, we look back, we look at our parents, we look at where we've come from, and we, we get overcome with the reality of like, I'm burdened by this. I'm connected to this. How do I ever break free of this? Like, Jesus comes out of this, this family tree. Jesus is born through this dysfunction, this nonsense. Yeah, you might have had some really terrible parents. But that doesn't necessarily have to determine who you are, who you can be. Finally, and this is just a broad one, but is worthy of noting. In the family of Jesus, women are just as important as men. And you got to realize how revolutionary this list would have been in the time in which it was given. The patriarchy and a hierarchy of, of, of how men treated women and how women were viewed generally in society. I mean, including women in your genea, it was unheard of. Women couldn't even testify in certain cases. It's an amazing thing that Jesus does this. And what it tells us right from the beginning is not only is Jesus going to do something amazing, but he's going to include women in an amazing way. Jesus has done more to change the way that women are treated in the world than any other human being who has ever lived. And as a church, we should reflect that same heart and attitude. In closing, with the few minutes we have left, I want to get back to verse 17. Because Matthew... He sums up this genealogy. Look at it again, verse 17. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Now, aside from him like acknowledging that he's summarizing um, and skipping over a few things, but he's making these connections. Um, aside from the, the interesting pattern that we have here, and there is a, a, a unique symmetry that's presented here in these three couplings of 14 generations. 
Uh, I believe, and again, you can read all kinds of theories about like what is Matthew trying to say here. I'm going to present what, what I think. Because I believe Matthew is, is trying to articulate something that, that is very significant in the very beginning of this book. But it's something that probably wouldn't have really been picked up on if you weren't a Hebrew, if you weren't a Jew. Again, there's a Jewish flavor to his writing. Got to go with me here. From Abraham to David, we have 14 generations. But understand, the Jew would have seen 14 generations a different way. They would have seen two couplings of seven. Numerology. And then from David until the Babylonian captivity, you have another 14 generations. Or what the Jews would have seen, two more couplings of seven. And then from the captivity to Christ, there's this third set of 14 generations. Or two final couplings of seven. Now, broadly speaking, Matthew's telling us that from Abraham to Jesus, there were 42 generations. Now, 42 doesn't have a lot of significance within biblical numerology. And yet, the Jew would not have read it that way, 42 years. Because, again, that would have been the easy way of saying it. But what we have here, the way the Jew would have read it, 42 generations or they would have seen six couplings of seven in total. Two times two times two. Like what that means is that beginning with Jesus, you have the start of what would now be the seventh coupling. Bear with me. It's interesting that Matthew begins his entire book writing that this is the book of note, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, After that, he lists out the seven couplings of seven generations that bring us to Jesus. But in the original language, this word we have, genealogy, um, it's not just unique. It's quite abnormal. It's only used in three places in, in, in the New Testament. And of the two other places, it's not translated as genealogy. In fact, the Greek word that's being used here is literally the word genesis. It can be translated as beginnings, or origins. And again, taking into account Matthew's religious background, using the word, the original word, using the word Genesis would have been intentional. Now, how interesting that for six days God created before resting on the seventh day. The seventh day signified the completion of God's work. It was the day in which God intended to sit back and enjoy the relationship he had with man. And yet, following man's rebellion, man's sin, God's rest ceased. As he set about bringing about the redemption of man and the restoration of the relationship that had been lost. It's why the Sabbath day was consecrated. It's why it was considered to be holy. Humanity was commanded not to work. Why? To acknowledge the fact That God's rest had ceased and he had begun to work. God was working. Something that man couldn't do. You stop doing anything. I'm working to bring about the restoration of something that's important. Now, setting aside the events that occurred between Genesis 4 and 11, there is no question that in his calling of Abraham and Genesis 12, God was initiating a plan to accomplish his aim. To the Hebrew mind, 
Seven always meant completion. Seven notes to a scale, seven days to a week. The numbers here are not a coincidence. I'm convinced. And a stroke of genius And the way that Matthew structures verse 17, the way he summarizes the genealogy, he's telling his Jewish audience that this work that God had set into motion with Abraham, a work that lasted 42 generations, or six couplings of seven generations, had now been completed with the arrival of Jesus the Christ. The beginning of a seventh coupling. You see, six couplings of seven, covering God's work through the Old Covenant, through the Old Testament, was now giving way to a seventh work that would be initiated by Jesus and Jesus alone. You see, Jesus was not only the fulfillment of the promise, of the promises, but Jesus came to what? He came to fulfill and start something entirely new. Jesus came to what? to bring humanity back into a returning of the seventh day. A restoration of our relationship with God. Sabbath rest. Reconciliation with God. A relationship that existed before sin. That's what Jesus came to do. While Jesus was born, birthed, from six couplings of seven generations, Moving forward, what Matthew is letting us know is that Jesus' family was going to expand to include those born again through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus born through the Old Covenant, but He came to initiate a new covenant. You see, in setting up the larger flow of His Gospel, Matthew is saying, he's telling us, that with Jesus, God was starting something new that King Jesus would usher in a new Genesis a new creation that he would bring about a new beginning the seventh coupling a new generation so Father Lord we thank you for your word and what it says to us in Jesus name